the city as a teenager with a certain formation already, character, personality, the bones are here. We're sending this adolescent to finishing school. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Elizabeth Platterzaber, urban planner, architect, and educator, whose work has focused on the shaping of the built environment in cities. Elizabeth joins us today to discuss her role in planning for adaptation in Miami. Liz, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So over the course of the last uh, four decades, you've had as much as an impact as really any urbanist on the shape of Miami. You most recently have been engaged through your partnership, DPZ, focusing on the Miami 21 planning process. Tell us about that. Miami 21 is Miami's zoning code. It was a brand new code several years ago. Actually, it's hard to imagine. It's almost 10 years ago. Initiated by uh, Anna Hellebert Sanchez, the planning director, and Mayor Manny Diaz, both of whose leadership was really important to enable it. But it was intended to be a code for the new Miami, the Miami that was beginning another boom at a point in which um, I think many people thought What's the point of a new code? There's so much going on. Isn't the horse out of the barn already? But my colleagues and I felt that it was worth trying to take this enormous building energy and try to make this into a city that had a public realm that would make it worth walking uh, and not driving. And that in some way would transform the city to be, in fact, an urban density place of delight rather than where it was heading, which was to be largely a suburban in character and automobile dependent. It's well put. I mean, given that so many planning efforts across so many American cities tend to be adaptations or revisions to existing documents, was the idea of starting from a blank page a a radical idea? I mean, that strikes me as both ambitious, but also quite potentially very impactful in, in shaping the future of the city. And and it was even surprising for us because we brought our concepts to Mayor Diaz and said, you know, up to now what we've been saying is that uh, you make this an option to the existing legal framework and you make it more appealing uh, in various ways. So you encourage people to use it, but you don't take apart the old system because that's probably politically impossible. And he said, no, we're going to start. We're going to start over. And that was It was ambitious, and it was incredibly encouraging to everybody who worked on it, including, I would say, the citizenry that participated in the effort. So this was a project of yours and and your partnership with Andres Duane, so in DPZ. And it was also a project which was, in some ways, maybe fortuitous in timing this business cycle. Now, as you say, this was almost a decade ago now. And so Miami 21, it may have been already in a moment when the city was changing, uh, really quite, I think, uh, anticipated what's been really almost a decade now of prosperity in this part of the world. And the intention was that um, the emphasis would be on the form of buildings insofar as they influence or form the public space. So it was really about the street space or the public spaces. We understood that significant portions of the city would be high rises that would be highly formal, interesting buildings. But what those buildings did for the pedestrian and for the streets was really the core goal. And in 
the other aspect, of course, was how it was a city of commercial corridors that ran through residential neighborhoods that were, were interested in conserving their residential character, their one or two story neighborhood. And that commercial development was impinging in ways that people were unhappy about. So there was a lot of attention paid to transitions in height and density rather than the old suburban buffers. And I think it became very influential as a, as a quote unquote form-based code that could encourage other places to embark on a similar effort. I should say though, one very important component is there's always a history and a, a kind of DNA that's in place. We you know, we said there's already a lot here. There, there are expectations about capacity, vested rights. There's a street grid. The separation of public and private property has largely occurred historically. So this is a teenager. The city is a teenager. <laughs> so Miami, the adolescent. With a certain formation already, character, personality, the bones are here. We're sending this adolescent to finishing school. But I mean, clearly both Miami 21 and your work more broadly with DPZ have been uh, notable for their focus on spatial planning. So well beyond simply land use, regulatory, and policy frameworks, which are necessary but insufficient, as many would argue. But ultimately, the kind of spatial framework and the focus on the public realm. You mentioned uh, the topic of automobility. I mean, clearly, this is a city and a part of the world that's been built over the course of much of the last century around uh, both single-family home ownership and the idea of automobility. So what elements within Miami 21 were you focusing on to try to mitigate the impact of the automobile or to balance in a way the automobility of the city with uh, the pedestrian experience? If you look at the city's public transit offerings, the downtown is incredibly rich in that way. There's two kinds of rail, uh, believe it or not, that are here, a convergence of bus lines and, and it's eminently walkable. There's a river that you could travel on as well. So I don't think it was a reach here. In other places, there is a need for density in order to encourage that transit to grow. We wanted parking to disappear as a street front element. Wider sidewalks, there's one setback on the largely commercial corridors so that there can be a continuous public realm and a pedestrian area. And in the higher density areas, there's a requirement for pedestrian passages through the blocks because we do have the block size that is generated by the Jeffersonian Mile, which is just a little bit too long. It's all about making the pedestrian path as convenient and short as possible. So what may seem to be either pain in the neck or insignificant requirements were brought into the picture in order to make the pedestrian life a more safe, comfortable and interesting one in this city. Well, it certainly you know, is a city that uh, is both walkable, but also experienced in various ways around various forms of of transportation. Does the plan anticipate a kind of uh, an overall increase in population and growth over the medium term? Absolutely, yes. That said, that wasn't envisioned in terms of any specific data. That growth was envisioned as emerging from existing expectations for the capacity and the land. And in particular, in terms of the underlying zoning, the existing zoning that had been there. And I think you always have to do this is determine what's to be conserved or saved, what can be developed and to make that very clear, because otherwise, you know, the neighborhood people are worried about what's going to happen to them and the developers are worried about their loss of 
value. And so that conservation and development duality was really driving it. And it was geographically based. I mean, you mentioned conservation in relationship to community. This is among the storylines that emerges in Miami's history, that this is a place and not just the beach, but broadly Miami, a place where somehow design leadership, the development community and neighborhoods have come together around the idea of preserving the viable aspects of their physical past. This is an extraordinary accomplishment compared to so many other American cities where preservation has been seen to be really in opposition to development. Have you found that the development community have been partners in, in your work in Miami 21? Are they supportive of the efforts? I would say yes. I think throughout the process and and then the feedback that we've been getting has been that it that the development community finds it easier to work with, the architects do, because it is all about predictability. We were replacing regulations that sometimes had multiple layers that until you that you couldn't really tell what the result would be. And that's of course part of the American legal system is you don't ditch anything, you just add things. But in zoning, it's because the categories are broad and citywide and you have a highly localized issue to deal with. And so instead of changing that original zoning category, you somehow modify it locally. And and so we managed to consolidate that history into something that was much more simple. I mean, as an outsider to Miami and its formal planning processes, it's a remarkably lucid document or set of documents. And I think that legibility, as you say, is quite unique in the context of other American cities. So it's been nearly a decade now. Can you see evidence of the way in which both the process and the product of Miami 21 have impacted the shape of the city already? The things that were most visible, I think, to people quickly. And of course, it went in in 2009 or 10, and that was that was the worst part of the recession. So there wasn't a lot of building going on. But for some reason or other, the, the banks were building branch banks on corners and CVS and Walgreens were building new. <laughs> <laughs> and these things would usually have been, you know, set back with a parking lot out front. And people literally cheered to see the building at the sidewalk with a wider sidewalk and a front door. And the parking to the side or the back instead. So that was the first way that it was visible. But I, I think you can also see efforts to conceal parking in the higher density buildings. It, you know, it's happening incrementally. So that wider sidewalk may not be visible everywhere yet, but it's happening. The urban arts are, you know, accretive and they take their time. Has it been surprising at all to you that in this part of the world, especially it was so hit by that downturn in the housing economy, that things have rebounded so robustly over the course of the last decade? Well, we should have been hit very badly. But between foreign investment and more recently, some of the tax changes that are encouraging people from places like New York to relocate to a state without income tax, I think we've seen a pretty steady stream of incoming residents or at least buyers or renters and renters of apartments. I mean, there seems to be limitless international demand for being here and being a part of the experience. But equally, we see it among young people, the creative class, so-called the designing classes, certainly, and others leaving other American cities to be a part of, of this part of the world. Have you seen evidence of your work on Miami 21 affecting conversations or planning efforts in other cities? Uh, well, you know, I think once Miami's was underway and shortly after we were done, you 
saw cities like Los Angeles, Austin, Denver, Cincinnati, a lot of cities beginning the efforts to remake their zoning codes. And as I said, given some of the other places that we've worked in, most of these places have been looking at codes that were written in the 20s or 30s, didn't even have a structure that reflected the fact that parking became a requirement in the 60s. So there was no separate article or chapter on parking. It's just kind of slipped into 10 different places. I mean, the the fact that in half a decade, city zoning codes had not really reassess their structure and what was in them, what had been added over the years, is something that everyone's just coming to terms with now. So even in the places that are happy with what they're doing, but they're just trying to make themselves more efficient. Are there places that are happy? (laughs) Yes, yes, there are. We find that what's most appreciated, first of all, is a reorganization of the document and moving things around. And then once that's done, then you can really address the content. I see. I see. So you, you, your work, Liz, and the work of, uh, of DPZ have been engaged in, you know, focusing on the shape of the city for many, many decades. You uh, trained as an architect. You, coming out of Yale architecture, you moved here in the 1970s. Do I have that right? Yes. First of all, did you come out of your training as an architect with a, a preformed or an established set of urban commitments? Was it clear that you had an aspiration to work on the scale of the city? Or when did that emerge for you? That was not clear at all. I look back uh, on a course about modern cities taught by Ken Frampton as an important foundation for all this work, but certainly it, it was one building at a time, the way architecture was being taught at the time. And we were just beginning in the early to mid-70s to hear about some Europeans who were talking about cities. And that included people like Rem Kulhas, the two Creer brothers, Massimo Scolari, and their drawings and their discussions about that they're kind of, to some degree, romantic, but were truly surprising, I think, to most architects at that time. And so they were very influential, I think, in getting people to start thinking about what it could be like. We started looking around Leon Creer's Cartier, his description of the neighborhood and the walkability enabled us to look around Miami and say, you know, where can you walk to anything here if you live here? Our friends in the preservation world of Miami Beach say those kinds of early discussions were very important for their revaluing of the Art Deco district and understanding that it was a treasure from an urbanistic perspective. It wasn't just the individual buildings. So it was in the air. We were participating in something that I think was happening. That tour went around the whole country. So you were at a moment in your intellectual and architectural foundations, you were receiving the the failures of uh, modernist planning, the failures of modern architecture at the scale of the city from the European experience. And you were also making a decision to be here in this part of the world. How did you choose to set up shop in Miami of all the places that one could go as an architect? We were chased here by the recession of the 70s, the the oil recession, when nobody was getting any jobs up north. And the University of Miami played an important role in bringing us here. Andres Duane, my partner, was first uh, first hired to teach there. He brought uh, Bernardo Fort Brescia. He brought me and a host of others who've come and gone, some of whom are still here. 
And so that was, we thought we would follow the Paul Rudolph model, four years in Florida and then back to where we came from. <laughs> was that um, what it was? Four years. Yeah. Astonishing. Uh, I'm not sure, but that's what we thought it might <laughs> might work for us. But, you know, meanwhile, we became very engaged with what was happening. My understanding is that the School of Architecture was itself at that moment still in formation. Of course, architecture had been taught at the University of Miami for some decades. And so that was fairly early days, both in the formation of the institution, but also in its influence in the shape of the city. That's true. We were attached to engineering. We started something called the Architectural Club of Miami with our colleagues at Architectonica to bring speakers to town because that wasn't happening. And that's when the Institute's lecture series were were also bringing us ideas from other places. And I should say that the other piece that was important at the university, besides the Institute's influence with speakers, for instance, was that one of our colleagues from Yale discovered a book called Civic Art, the American Vitruvius Civic Art from 1922. And that began to influence us in our teaching as we started to examine these urban issues. And I should say we understood we were not going to be building the Cartier that Creer was speaking about, that we had to deal with our suburban fabric. And I remember how radical it was to say, I'm going to do a housing subdivision in Boca Raton for a studio <laughs> assignment. <laughs> and the civic art was open right there with the students. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so fantastic. they're, they're, uh, in retrospect, you're giving me the opportunity to think about important <laughs> moments. Uh, having grown up here in the 70s in one of the kind of post-war suburbs of Florida, there couldn't have been anything further from the kind of uh, cultural aspiration of that early project. I mean, I think one of the things that's been maybe underreported, you know, nationally really has been the role that you played as one as one of the foundational members of Architectonica. And I remember seeing those very early projects as they were published and the kind of the kind of w the wave that they made, you know, the kind of impact that they had, um, not not just in architectural discourse, but in ultimately in, in popular culture. You know, I would give Lorinda a lot of credit for that. Since she was the one of us who grew up here, she was very aware of the, the cultural heritage of the buildings. And those early Architectonica buildings were very much influenced by her recognition and admiration of the early modern and mid-century modern buildings of Miami and Miami Beach because she recognized that that was of the place, that it was certainly a regional character that was being displayed and also that it was a very much of our time in terms of materials and methods. And she saw value in those, which I think then the firm really picked up on in a very productive way. I mean, many of the... Um ingredients, if we could use that term, that you're describing, already a global city and, you know, a, a city that's in the Venn diagram between the kind of tropical environment and kind of U.S. legal and economic frameworks, combined with a certain history of built fabric, also a certain kind of aspiration to modernity, strikes me as quite unique. And it also speaks to, to frankly, your, your insights, you and your colleagues seeing in the 1970s and 80s that, well, this combination of preserving our built past, mixing that with the aspiration to build something new, that combination, again, is it's very hard to come by in many other cities. You're probably right. I'm not sure we knew what our aspirations were in those early years, but we had come out of a certain kind of intellectual framework in the schools we were in and landing in the midst of a 
a world of developers and speculative building in which we were always trying to say, how do these two things go together? There must be a way to put them together. Not, we don't, we're not going to give up everything we learned just to be able to make a living here. And so I think of Steph Palazoides, Mullen Palazoides in California, Dan Solomon in San Francisco, that there were others around the country who were grappling with these same dichotomies, let's say. And that's what brought us together eventually with this idea of making the Congress for the new urbanism, because we said we're, you know, we're dealing with something that a lot of people are dealing in. Wouldn't it be great to learn some something from each other or somehow advance what we're learning in a bigger way. So with the formation of uh, Duane Platter-Zabrak DPZ and at the same moment, a series of really notable projects, you're also cultivating a discourse, a conversation, a network of people consciously, ultimately, that becomes really a global phenomenon. It really has, you know, you, you can't write the history of our field. You can't write the history of urbanism in the last half century without placing you and Andres Duane central to that effort. Were you aware or conscious of that as a project in the early days? Or was that something that became clearer ultimately as it as it came into formation? You know, I think uh, Andres developed a way of speaking to the profession and to the public about a lot of what was going on. And I remember him very clearly as we were developing building designs in our practice saying there needs to be a line of thought. We need to have some intellectual framework for what we're doing. It's not just something new every time we do it. We already know the limitations of construction in South Florida. What's going to be the overriding idea? At that point, I think the idea that there might be some connection to the larger context of the city, of urbanism or of the region, became important. From my perspective, I can say as a a student of architecture in this state in the 1980s, What emerged for me in my consciousness was a combination of things that I hadn't seen sorted together before that I now associate with you, Liz, and with with your colleagues. A part of that is this um, historic literacy, a kind of an awareness of the cultural project in which even though we may be here in a particular locale, we're working in a larger, longer durée tradition. And in that, I would also say, would, would would you agree with this characterization? I think you and your colleagues engaged in a redefinition of what the region was. You know, and something about being in the Caribbean basin, something about being in this part of the world, one could imagine a kind of cosmopolitan, even kind of international identity, but one which was based in a certain climatic region. And then also a kind of a level of comfort with the informality and the vernacular of building in this part of the world. Yes, no, that's absolutely true. Certainly among the faculty of the early school was a group of people from around the Caribbean, which enabled that kind of focus. And and then I think we realized that from New Orleans to Charleston, South Carolina, that there was this connection with, through the sea, to the Caribbean and to this kind of region that maybe we were in the center of being down here at the end of Florida, more so than the rest of the country. And in, And so we began to understand the distinctions of being in this place that were related to climate, related to materials, related to cultures. But, you know, I might add one thing that maybe was different here than in other places, a reaction to Frampton, to that regional ideal, to postmodern 
exploration of history, which was at one point we were quite happy to take it to a very literal exploration and production. And part of that had to do with the suburban context. If we were going to be somehow transforming the what I think we thought was the banality of suburban building, we realized it had to be done to some degree in the terms of the culture that was appreciating that place or that kind of building. And so much of the kind of postmodern interpretation of history and with innovative forms and you know, approaches to materials we realized was probably overly ambitious for the speculative world. It was more for a kind of patron client. The traditions, early American, Mediterranean, wherever you were, were very important and were being produced in suburbia as a kind of kitsch version of those honorable histories. I think at that moment is when we said, well, we just have to bring the best version of this. And why shouldn't these traditions, why shouldn't they be able to evolve in the honorable fashion that they they evolved in the in mm. the first place? So I mean, it's interesting to me you use the you use the term honorable. It speaks to a kind of um ethic. And and you you framed it, you know, now in your in your remarks in terms of the commercial development uh, economy of building in this part of the world combined with a reading of its history suggested to you a limitation to certain of the excesses that we saw. But it strikes me that you, another characteristic of the work is not always indulging in the the more superficial or iconographic aspects of some of that work, you know, and 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 seeking in the history of type or the history of climate and region something maybe more meaningful, is that fair, or durable? Um, maybe timeless. Timeless, yeah, fair enough. I would point to Vince Scully's influence. He used to speak of the the kind of diminished form of, of the inaugural building of the new place. And even before that period that he's known for writing about it, you look at the early colonial work, whether it's the Spanish um, missions on the other coast or the British colonial architecture of the Northeast, they only had one thing to work with, with very, given the very modest materials and, and scale that they could manage, and that was proportions. And so those buildings are beautiful because they have a proportional system. But we realized that you, just applying something as simple as that to the current vernacular could be very effective in distinguishing buildings. And so th- that then opened the door to really studying the traditions. And And I should say one of the things that gives me a, a great satisfaction is that that opened the door for architects to be able and their and the owners of these buildings to say there's a place for this kind of cultural production, which we enjoy participating in either as an owner or a designer. There can be a place for this in in a way that it's not just an outlier, you know, in the midst of whatever else is going on in a contemporary way. So this kind of placemaking capacity of the traditions became very powerful, I think. It's interesting and well put. I mean, you're you're speaking to something that I've had a hard time putting words around, which is something about your practice, which I associate in your work and DPC's oeuvre more broadly, its impact in the field. Again, a a kind of integrity to its own project. One has a sense that whether you were in building Seaside, you know, curating a collection of really quite fashion-forward architects of the day, or whether you're building a new a new physical spatial planning code for a city, that you seem to be speaking with one set of languages. 
and one doesn't have a sense that you're parsing that language for different audiences. Yeah, it's trying hard not to be patronizing. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I took from that experience and, and that Craig Robbins mentioned in our conversation with him and in your collaboration with him is that if the spatial framework, if the planning framework, if the urban design and pedestrian framework is robust enough, it's durable enough, it can also sustain all manner of cultural life, including architectural flourishes. Absolutely. So I've just come out of an urban design studio in which I tried to explain to students that as the urban designer, you you can wield the most powerful influence on the built environment when you lay out the streets. And, and the buildings, which we architects think, of course, are the most important, are really the third tier. And you might engage in the second tier quite often yourself, Charles. But that subdivision of public and private property has a very long life and is very durable. And the second one is how you detail that public realm because that's public money and it's a lot of money and it it may get redone every 50 or 100 years. Uh, you know, there's a long term. And that involves infrastructure, landscape, water management. I mean, a lot of things that then are hard to change. And But the buildings change. The life of the mortgage is 30 years. Depreciation is 10 years or whatever it is. And so that that first action of how you put it together, which you were just talking about, is really very powerful. And you have to be very careful about how you do it because it has a big effect and a long-term effect. I mean, in the kind of colonial context of the American city, uh, it's absolutely evident, as you say, the, the durability of those liniments as they're placed on the ground. And my colleague uh, at the GSD, Juan Busquets, has recently published a book really just about the urban grid and that question of proportion, its relationship to walkability and what it, uh, what it might afford. So in your practice in advocating for a, a new kind of urbanity, you've anticipated what now seems to be a certainly a generational trend nationally in which many people would prefer to live in an urban environment. Living in the city, you know, living in a walkable, diverse, uh, culturally vibrant, but also um, kind of uh, proximate environment seems so desirable to so many people these days. Well, yes. And and now the challenge is how do you make that accessible to more people than those who can afford it? I mean, uh, Richard Florida does a great mea culpa about how talking about the creative class seems to have invited wealth back into the cities in a way that has become exclusive in many areas and affordability crisis of many cities is clearly a result of that. It's true. I mean, one of the clear challenges in Miami today is affordability and access to housing, particularly among the working class. You know, it, it, it used to be the fact that somebody like uh, my friend Jimmy Morales in the city of Miami Beach could grow up there, the son of working class parents working in the service industry. They could live in Miami Beach. They could work there. And now the working class have increasingly uh, a set of challenges. And if you combine affordability challenges with mobility time, times of commuting, it makes it very difficult in a city like Miami. It's very tough. In and the it, context of the American you know, city. We've known that about Manhattan, for instance, for a long time. There are many places and all of a sudden it's arrived here in Miami. Surprise, surprise. So that's the question of our time is, how do you bring that kind of urban amenity to the places that don't have it? How do we retrofit these environments? How do we acknowledge their difference? But at the same moment, different forms of mobility I and mean, changes, presumably technological and cultural about how we move around. And you know, how, how, how do we somehow 
integrate the entire life cycle within the neighborhood. Like how do we build neighborhoods that can be both diverse but inclusive of different generations? How is it possible to have education, culture, you know, a full life in the context of the city yeah. and not need to flee at a certain point in time to have aspects of uh, healthcare or education? Yeah. So, you know, I think we all, we now we know how to do that. And there are lots of good examples, both new and regenerated. But there are miles and miles of the stuff that we built between 1950 and continue to build today to some degree that don't serve us in that way. And, and that's a huge geography. <laughs> when it comes to affordable housing, I think the first thing is there is a stock and we should be dedicated to saving as much of it as possible. And so how do you do that? I think often people think of um, affordable housing as it, it's new. How do we build new affordable housing? And, you know, the NIMBYs don't want it. And, and then you find out that the construction cost is more than the affordability benchmarks allow. And beyond that, the real estate, the land now is part of an equity class of investment and the investors are driving its value, not the users. And so the challenges are great, but it has to start with a kind of unified dedication or commitment to saying this is important and we need to wield all the tools. I don't know how many people have seen what it takes to produce a new quote unquote affordable or workforce housing complex of anywhere from you know, 30 to 200 units, the kind of aggregation of funding programs, the bureaucracy of pulling all that together is amazing. Six or eight different funding sources, some public, some private, some non-for-profit. You really need experts to do that. And it's difficult to do the new stuff. And that's why it's important to try to buy down the value of the old places. Miami 21 spoke to that insofar as a zoning code could by making increases in density for market rate building enable funding of affordable housing, or you could incorporate it in the building and receive the additional capacity for the market rate. How is it going forward a city might be able to imagine uh, increasing density, providing greater mobility options uh, in relationship to those cultural histories that can be quite durable? That is a challenge. And particularly because there is a uncertain long-term future for reasons of changing climate. But I, I do believe that it's in almost any city, at least one that has the kind of history that you're referring to, that it's worth saying some of that will stay or we will make every effort to enable it to stay. And that's a specific geography or maybe individual moments or places, buildings, and then that there will be other parts of the city that are invited to change and grow and increase in density over time. And hopefully that might happen in relation to mobility, whether it's public transit or whatever else we invent in the future, but for now, public transit. Well, we also, you know, must acknowledge that uh, the city of Miami is arguably the city in the United States that's the most uh, vulnerable to sea level rise and increased storm events associated with anthropogenic uh, climate change and global warming. Uh, we know from our work uh, with the city of Miami Beach that they're already engaged in a very ambitious program of elevating streets and installing backflow preventers and pumps and pipes to rebuild uh, their city at a higher, more sustainable elevation. H how do you view the challenges associated with sea level rise and storm event in this part of the world? 
You know, I think we probably need to come to terms with the end game. I sat on a task force 10 years ago where the thinking in public just started and no one wanted to talk about anything but immediate mitigation, reducing carbon and immediate adaptation. And I think, you know, that mitigation is one kind of universal action that everybody can take around the world and that adaptation is often immediately needed is a short-term as well as long-term consideration, and it's highly localized. And that's one reason it's hard to get a federal government to focus on it, because it's so different wherever you are. You know, flooding in Iowa is different than flooding in Miami. and some places, it's fire and drought. But in order to understand how to marshal the resources or to deploy them in the short term, you really need to understand the long-term picture. And that's the scary part of it. And it also needs a unified approach, which seems hardly possible from a political perspective. But everybody would need to come together and say, what's the end game and how are we going to have an orderly life here as things change? Because we haven't been good at that in the U.S. American cities deteriorated in the 20th century in a very unconscious way. I mean, What happened to the Rust Belt could happen to cities that are threatened by climate change, in which there's a slow reaction to something big that's happening. The people who can depart and, you know, other people are left behind and a built environment gets left behind. And so I think we understand what could happen. We actually have experience with every aspect of this future, in my opinion. And we need to deploy that knowledge in studying the scenarios. And the, one of the most complex parts of it is the, is the financial one. You know, so for an architect or an urban designer, we could suggest build this up here, defend this, retreat there. You know, it's easy enough to do that on paper. But what about the underlying values or growing or diminishing values of the properties? And where does insurance play a role in that? Could tax policy and uh, things like depreciation play a role and then what's the, you know, if there is a retreat from some places, what do you do with what's left behind? How do you clean? Who pays for the cleanup? So the end game right now, real estate has an, has a forever value in most people's imagination. You're going to sell it. You hope it's appreciating. For most people, it's their largest investment, their house, for instance. And how do you change that picture? As you say, it strikes me that... On the one hand, there are colleagues of ours that are arguing that at the level of finance and insurance and reinsurance, people, individual actors and institutions are already beginning to make choices. They're already beginning in their pro forma to to price in. I know that many of the new developments uh, here on both sides of Biscayne Bay have already anticipated another level for the public realm. They've already anticipated a storm event that keeps their population on site and safe for uh, several weeks. And in that context, is there a, a particular challenge here in Miami where the the preserved built fabric has been preserved in a certain geography over a certain limestone geology and at a, an elevation that's particularly vulnerable? Well, let's take the Art Deco district, for instance, which may be the most obvious one. So what are the scenarios for that? So there's already a group of architects who are saying, well, that'll have to go and then you know, the hands are rubbing together and saying we're going to really be able to rebuild something big and important there. 
And so I dare say there are scenarios being made of precisely what you can do with historic districts as well as historic buildings. But I think probably not yet at the scale of benchmarking in some way. How long can you do something? What kind of technology do we need to develop if we want to be defending longer? You know, the whole scenario from defense to retreat deserves a lot of work. It strikes us that, you know, there will be, even before we talk about retreat and rebuilding, there will be decades of learning to live with water in different ways. Yeah, accommodating it. It's hard to talk about this without getting highly specific, but I think it should be pointed out that we're dealing with our localized anticipated impacts. There are different impacts in different parts of the country. And I always used to say, you know, mitigation is universal and adaptation is highly localized, but there is one universal adaptation to consider, which emerged in my thinking recently. And that is under all the different impacts, whether it's drought, heat, fire. I mean, there are days when airline departures or landings are canceled in Arizona because of heat. I mean, what does that do? What kind, How can you adapt to that in the long run? But we need to be considering in all of these places, how do you get people out of harm's way? How do we leave? Because at some point, it's just too costly to maintain that adaptation. At some point, when does it behoove us to think about not being in the places where we shouldn't be? No doubt. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the research of planners working in the middle of the 20th century, Ian McCarg, for example, his maps of Staten Island predicted almost precisely the impacts of Sandy. These, these are known, known bodies of knowledge. Of course, you know, many American cities, Seattle and Chicago come to mind, have elevated over a story over the course of a century. And in the lived experience of, of cities uh, internationally, each element of this puzzle, as you say, we know quite a lot about. Um, you mentioned storms, storm event, living in this part of the world. I know growing up here, you know, tracking the hurricanes, the seasonal, you know, depressions. That's a part of life in, the, in this region. It has been as long as humans have lived here. At the same moment, we know that we'll have more frequent storm events. We know that populations will have differential abilities to respond to their challenges. And um, City of Miami, Miami-Dade have uh, chief resilience officers that are working hard on these questions. Does it make a difference to be working in a state where the political leadership has not always been able to articulate climate change or adaptation to sea level rise? Or does it make a difference to work in a context where uh, at the local or the municipal level, there's a conversation going on, but at the larger scales, at the state and federal level, you don't always have the, the partnerships that you're looking for? Probably someone from within government would give you a different answer. But I think that it's so localized that it's the region that needs to be leading the charge. So, yes, it would have been nice if the state were paying attention and if there was some funding coming down. But I think everybody understands that the state is so large. There's so many different conditions. There's so many people who would be asking for help. On this topic, every region is should think that they're on their own. How long is FEMA going to bail us out of things? FEMA has some tragedy somewhere in the United States every week, in which they're sending people and money to. I don't know how that continues. But it has a lot to do with the amount of people that are just in places and in the wrong places. Mm. And this history often of a culture in which, you know, risks are somehow al yeah. allowed to be to be taken on. So we did identify in that first public work that you needed, at least at the regional scale, some kind of unified management or approach to this problem, whatever 
it was going to turn out to be. And what resulted that from that was the Southeast Florida Climate Compact, in which four counties are, in fact, trying to share information, benchmark um, various issues together. And, you know, I think that's probably the right way to do it and not depend so much on Tallahassee. But I will say that the larger government influence or impact might be in terms of the regulatory framework that enables action to be taken or does not or gets out of the way, removes impediments. So the climate action areas that the state allows you now to identify to study things is probably was one of those helpful steps. But I imagine that there's a whole series of other regulatory impediments to working on these things that probably need to be cleared out first. And, you know, in fact, that's what the social scientists will tell you, that there's three steps to change. And the first one is to is to understand what you need to do to have the good example of something. But the clearing out the impediments from a regulatory perspective is also an important one. Doesn't get a lot of attention, I suppose. So if that could occur in such a way that then you allow the regions to work on what they have to do, that would be helpful. Liz, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. It was an enjoyable conversation. You took me through quite a journey of topics and time. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.